This is Jerry Oldman coming to you from Coast Salish Territory. Today's podcast is on relationships. One of the critical areas in our life, you know, is how we are with people, how we relate, especially when it comes to mates or spouses or the spice of your life. You know, it's... um, we have been unfortunate that we've lost that ability. We were not taught how to live with each other, how to live with a mate. We lost that in the whole process of colonization from the residential schools, the 60 scoop, all of those things that were happening. It had a profound effect or impact and how we live with each other. You know, how we don't know how to correct mistakes, how to listen to each other, how to talk to each other. It seems to be, uh, you know, and I listen to in the air, what I hear is oppression or people not working together, not listening to each other. So today, we're going to be talking to a wonderful young man named Colby Tatusis from Saskatchewan. And he's coming to us with teachings in the air as a young man about how to live in relationship. And more importantly, also to add in there, he's guiding thoughts around parenting, being a young dad. This is going to be a real treat for us all. So I'd like you to be thankful and feel this gratitude for Colby when you hear him. He's an engaging young man and believes in the people and believes in our ways and sees a tremendous value they carry. So I can hardly wait for you to hear Colby. Thank you. Yes, and I met um, probably your granddaughter. I don't know which one it would be, but the late Ernest. Oh, yeah, yeah. 
I met him at um, yeah, I met him at Morley, Alberta. Cool, cool. Yeah, we were at a gathering there, a camp, big camp out. Oh yeah, nice. and that's where I seen him and heard words from him. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, yeah. Colby, I'd like to welcome you to Teachings in the Air podcast with Jerry Oldman. Thank you, man. Thanks for having me. Yes, in this series that, um, or this session on the, or this podcast is on men's wellness. And, um, we want to talk to you today about, about family, mm-hmm. about, uh, you know, um, with, uh, with our people. You know, we have, we prepared everyone before contact with um, Europeans. We prepared everyone. Everyone was taken care of. And they were taught to be part of the clan or the, what people call the family today. Mm-hmm. And this included the development of the, the mind, the body and the spirit. Yeah. So with that kind of guarantee, of course, we had um, health. We were very healthy. I yeah. tell people today, when, when I compare and contrast through research, in 1492, in Britain, the men were living to the age of 45. Oh, yeah. Meanwhile, meanwhile, we had elders, you know, 100. My great-grandfather is 105. So we were very, we come from a very healthy background. And that comes from our philosophies as families and how to raise our children. Mm-hmm. You know, with the attempted cultural genocide, many of our people have lost their way. In fact, have become lost and like wandering around. And this has severely hampered the personal growth and development of our children through the years. So that's why I'm I'm happy to talk to you because um, my nephew here told me that you're you're a, you'd like to talk to us being a father. Yeah, and I'm really I'm really glad to talk to you, Colby, because um, your uncle was one of my teachers in 1976. Oh yeah, nice. Eric and he was working for Nietzsche, mm-hmm. and I, he inspired me, you know, to indigenize myself again to reclaim my identity you know so i'm looking forward to talk to you and i'm glad to to meet you over the phone so now i'm going to ask you to introduce yourself to the people to the men you know that are going to listen to this podcast and um the lady relatives and friends too are going to listen to this because there's a big concern for our men that they're not going to wellness and personal growth and development to be healthy so can you please introduce yourself and tell us a bit about your family and your history, your nationality, etc. Okay, Colby? Sure, yeah. Um uh, how do I start this? Well, um <clears throat> my name's Colby Tatusis. My name's Colby Tatusis. I am from Palmaker Palmaker Band, Palmaker Cree Nation. Uh in the Middle East of Tree Six Territory. <laughs> in uh Cree Territory. Saskatchewan, and I grew up here, grew up under reserve, and and I, for me, I feel that I was honored and 
like privilege, you know, that, that I grew up with both my parents in my life, that they were present and they were engaged and they were involved in, in my development. You can even say even a little overly involved, you know, in my development and, and the whole experience of being parented, you know, with both parents there and in their grow and like with their growth, you know, has definitely given me a lot of clarity in how I want to approach being, being a parent, you know, especially as I've grown, grown up and currently 35, still living on Palmaker, although I have left the reserve for work and, and study and traveled the world numerous times to different places in the world. And, but I've always seen my homeland where I've grown up as, as a sacred place. And, and I've always had the intention to come back here and, and to raise, you know, my, my child or children here in, in the future. Yeah. I don't know what else to, <laughs> to, to say, to introduce myself as. Well, uh, perhaps you could, you could share with us your, your education, both cultural and Canadian or Euro. <laughs> Euro Judeo Christian education, if you have that, and um, the work that you have done. Okay. Uh, well, I, I've, uh, I really feel that I was that in my life I've experienced this alternate form of education because I've got I went to high school on the reserve here. And I've, I've gone to post-secondary. I've, I studied psychology and some Western philosophy and, but I didn't, I didn't feel like in my being that, that being in university was what I was meant to do. And I had that I wanted to be like this doctor in psychology. That was my plan. But it was like my being what wasn't agreeing with that. My heart wasn't agreeing with what my mind wanted to do. And, uh, I ended up not succeeding in university, it took some time off and, and then things started to fall into place where I became a, a life skills coach. I was trained by my mom and my, my late dad and I went into grief and recovery and I started to apply this life skills work and grief and recovery and working with young people, you know, in, in, in communities. I started working in, uh, in crisis of communities, working in areas of suicide prevention, suicide intervention, uh, working with children in schools, doing a lot of one-on-one work in terms of addressing their, the emotional traumas that they've experienced, but also extending that to working with parents, parents as well. And I've done that all my young life from my early twenties to, to now. You know, has been devoted and committed to working in the front lines of communities and families all across the land, whether it's in, you know, across Canada, in our different indigenous nations, or across the medicine line into the, into the states. And, and that's, that, that, that has been my passion. And what happened was the work and my commitment to that has definitely changed and has definitely evolved in, in having in me having to seek, you know, um, more knowledge, more insight and any tool that I can obtain, any training that I can get that would help me in helping people to help themselves. And some of the work include, has included this work called The Journey by Brandon Bays and I had to travel to Europe 
to to learn that, which was kind of ironic. It brought up that brought up a huge issue for me because because that the like the, the journey work, you know, my, that's what saved my dad's life, you know, when he first got sick. And I'm I'm something I'm willing to talk about later on. But you know, this journey work came into our life, and and we had an extra ten years of of my dad being in our life because of that work, and that's coming from his words, like he attests that that work saved his life. So me, in the experience of that work, I wanted to learn more about it. So I had to travel, you know, to Europe, ironically, to learn this amazing work to come back and share it with, with you know, my family and my people, which is interesting. And um, yeah, and, and that work has definitely evolved into the area of leadership. And as much as I love journey work, I wanted to share journey work. But I didn't, it's like my body, same, same thing in terms of going to university. It didn't agree with that. But then the, the lady who founded the journey, her name is Brandon Bays. Her husband developed this work using journey work in, in the context of leadership and directing it in the area of leadership. And he was running it in Australia. And man, I was ready to save my money and go to Australia to learn from this man because I really, I admired who he was and he was a mentor. He still is a mentor of mine. And, but he ended up bringing it to North America and we were, there was about 50, 60 of us that were the guinea pigs of this, of this, <laughs> of this work. And, and the, ex- the experience and the extent of, you know, being part of the journey work, experiencing journey work, we, we, we put together this whole leadership program together. And, and since then I've been sharing that sharing that work um, in my own way, um, granted permission from, you know, Kevin Billet, who's the founder of that work. And in last year, I was actually, I got, I got elected as, as a counselor for, for Paul Maker. And I can, I just finished four years working in that system. And that was one of the, I think most challenging four years of my life so far. Um, because that was when my dad, my, my late dad got sick again and uh, he didn't make it. He ended up passing away. One of my adopted mothers passed, passed away. My mother-in-law passed away. And, and at the same time, I, I was working in this, this very stressed system in a dynamic that wasn't healthy at all. And, but there was also a lot of blessing during that time because I got to learn, I got invited to take a, to take a program from a man who used to develop and create instruments for, for NASA, for their space program. And he has done this work around systems and he put out this invite to, for people who are doing conscious work to come and experience um, his training called New Conscious Systems. And, and I went to that training and he basically just gave it away. He's like, here, take it, run with it. And, and, and then combining the experience of working in the front lines of communities, you know, for over 10 years, experiencing, you know, the stress systems of band councils and, and tribal councils and AFN and, uh, PTOs, like provincial territory organizations, like these, these national Aboriginal organizations, experiencing those and then being able to see how stress affects 
how this how stress systems affect communities and families and individuals. And so what we've done is we've developed our own program called Agamemnon, um, and we phased it. And the first phase of the Agamemnon program is called Rise, and we've so far we've taken it, you know, across the prairies and into into the states and. And we're, and it's developing on its own. It's like this organic program that's really creating itself. And we're exciting about, we're excited about it because we're, my partner and I have been, who has also experienced a lot of this work, we've been applying it to our own life, both in our relationship and with the intention of creating space for the healthy development of our, of our daughter. Yeah. So that's a little bit of the, a little bit of the journey and, what I've been doing in my life. Yeah, <laughs> that's a, you know, I'm so, I guess, impressed that you have this awareness to listen to your body to say, oh, hey, this is not right for me. You know, I want to change direction here. Which is very good. But I'd like to hear your views and what, what do you feel the core issues are now for family, for indigenous families in Canada and North America? That's a, that's a really good question. You know, what are the core issues that are affecting, you know, our indigenous families out there? And, and, you know, from my experience within myself, I've, when I've connected the dots, it's always come back to, to that attempted genocide. It's always come back to, to colonialism and, and also the, the, the belief systems, the paradigms of how we, of how we engage and how we connect to children. A lot of the work that, you know, that I've committed myself to is always asking the question, how is who I am going to affect the children? How is this workshop? How is this program? How is this podcast? going to affect the children how is this interview going to affect children and and that's the question that i that i ask myself and 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 one of the things that goes with that you know attempted genocide and colonialism is 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 also our relationship to to uh, ourselves to our emotional selves to to that balance within within myself so my the the, the mental self my emotional self my body um, my spirituality, my prayer way of life, what, whatever that, whatever that is for you, whatever that is defined as, as a family or as a community or as an individual. And so that also brings up the awareness around trauma. And there's a, I find that there's a lot of confusion. There's a lot of assumptions around healing. And, and around trauma and, and my, like from my, in the context of my, I can only use my own family as an example, but in the context of my family, like my mom and my, my late dad, they're, they're both social workers, they're both life skills coach trainers, and they're both therapists in, in the community. And that's why I feel like I was privileged because despite the mistakes that they have made, and they have made some, they were still able to provide myself and my siblings the space for us to do our own healing. And to, I think that was the biggest 
most profound gift that they can ever provide us is the space for us to be vulnerable and for themselves to expose and for them to expose themselves because when we've done when we've done our healing work a lot of our issues had to do with had to do with them a lot of my issues had to do with my dad a lot of the issues had to do you know with my mom whether their relationship with them between themselves or or towards me and i think one of the major beliefs out well from my experience one of the major beliefs out there that are really limiting our our growth and our liberation as peoples is the belief around that i don't have any issues that I don't have to look at myself, that I'm done my healing journey, or that mm-hmm. I've taken training and I'm done my healing journey, I don't have to look at myself anymore. And I like to poke fun of that. I like to make fun of that because because, <laughs> because there's no such thing as being complete in the journey. Like, you're not going to finish. It's, it's like an ongoing thing. It's like that's what growth is about. A tree never stops growing. The land never stops growing. There's always... Like in the natural world, systems are constantly evolving. And so there's this, there's like this evolution that's constantly happening. And so anyone who says, you know, that I don't have to work on myself or I don't have issues, they're, they're either in denial or they're, they're lying to themselves and, and to you. So I, I like to like, I'm like really upfront about that because, because I have to ask myself, how is who I am going to affect the collective? How is who I am going to affect the children? And if I'm in denial of my growth, I'm going to limit, you know, my influence. I'm going to limit what children are exposed to. Because um, how I understand it is that children, they're not going to remember my daughter. She's not going to remember what I say to her. She's going to remember how who I was. She's gonna remember the decisions that I made during circum circumstance during during certain circumstances or situations. She's gonna remember, okay, how was my dad doing when he was grieving? How did my dad handle his anger? How how did he express his his emotions when they came up for him? How did he express his emotions around me? And so the the whole approach has been in terms of my family has been providing the space and the safety to for vulnerability to be there to to be here so that growth can happen naturally organically on its own uncontrollably yeah so mm-hmm. when, so when you talk about like your question about the you know one of the main issues you know it, it does come down for me from my understanding to the attempted genocide colonialism, the traumas that go with that, but also around those beliefs around around healing and around liberation, around freedom in terms of, you know, the the forgiveness and the uh, the acceptance that needs to take place within an individual, the the reclaiming of of self power, the, the reclaiming of greatness, the reclaiming of 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 who a person is on the inside. And it's it's not easy, it's not easy at all. Mm-hmm. But it can but it can happen. It, it, mm-hmm. it can happen. Yeah. Yeah. You know, the, um, listening to you, I remember I, I say healing is a road. It's not a destination. Uh, yeah. We're gonna constantly need healing. If someone's gonna hurt us, we're gonna hurt ourselves. We're gonna make a mistake, and it's a constant. 
You know, we pay attention to that, we're going to be all right. You yeah. know, and uh, the children are our echo, or, you know, our reflection or the ripple, because they absorb what, what we are. Just by being with us, like you were saying, how does how is my daughter going to handle grieving? Well, how did dad do it? Yeah, you know, it's um, it's a. I I believe that's you know I believe with the core issues what you're saying. You know, we we achieved or we have broad based problems today because of colonization, because colonization is res- reservations, the Indian Act, residential schools, sixties scoop, Indian hospitals, all of those institutions that were created and racism was created with is an institution too used by the colonial people and eventually the people that broke away from england and started canada they carried that same energy that same philosophy that there was something wrong with us you know and we're given that message and many of our people internalized those negative messages Stupid mm-hmm. Indian, drunken, crazy Indian, pagan, savage, heathen, you know, all the <laughs> messages from colonization. We're seeing the reflection of that coming out of the mouths of our children today and our people. Mm-hmm. You know, so, um, you know, the first relationships are critical, you know, and we're going to enter a relationship, you know, so how to, how to do that. You know, I'd like to ask you, Colby, you know, your thought process and uh, what is happening and what guided you to enter into a healthy relationship. That's awesome. That's an awesome, awesome question. And I, I really, like, I really give credit to, I give all credit actually to, to the women in, in my life. Because for me, like, for me, in, in, you know, doing a lot of the, the work within myself, um, you know, as, you know, as, as a male and, and as identified, you know, heterosexual male, I, I give full credit to the women in my life, you know, my mom, my aunties, you know, my cookums, um, because who they, who they were and, and how they, how they were around me, you know, growing up, you know, as a child, growing up as a child really had an influence in what I was going to look for in, in a life partner. Even when they were yelling at me, even when they were mad at me, even when they were struggling with the men in their life, you know, because I, I, like, to me, their presence allowed me to accept the femininity within myself. Mm-hmm. And allow me to work on the balance between the masculine and the feminine, whatever that is defined as and looks like for me authentically and genuinely. And, and you know, and, and also giving, acknowledging, you know, the men, you know, the, the, the male presence in my life as well, who have definitely given some insight in who I wanted to be and also who I didn't want to be, uh, growing up. And, one of the things my mom would always share when I, when I, when I started to be interested in having, you know, a partner, because I would talk about it with her, you know, I talk about everything with my mom and, and she would highlight, well, if you like a girl, 
you got to ask your parents first, he'd say. And, and I was so scared, you know, so I would actually avoid the whole idea of actually having a girlfriend because I would have to talk to the parents. So, but I honestly, you know, in all honesty, full disclosure, I wasn't, I wasn't interested in having a girlfriend. I wasn't even interested in girls until I was about 18, 19. I, would just, I just loved video games and basketball. That was my life. But then what happened was there was, there was a, there was a, there was a lady who caught my eye, a woman who caught my eye and, and, and I was, I was friends with her for a year, I courted with her for a year and, and, and I wanted, I wanted to date her. I wanted her to be my, I wanted to walk through life with her. And, uh, I had to ask her, her mom because her, her father wasn't in the picture. But I remember having to ask her mom if I can date her daughter and, and man, I got the shaft. She rejected me. She just <laughs> bluntly said no. And I didn't know what to do because in my mind, I thought, you know, I, I thought I'd be approved, but I, I wasn't, I wasn't approved. And, and, uh, but I had, so I asked, I was like, why? Like, is there a reason why? You know, the, and, and I didn't take offense by it either. You know, I wasn't offended. I was more hurt. And, uh, she just said, because I want her to finish school. And so, okay, well, I promise I won't get in the way of her education. I won't get in the way at all. She's like, well, okay then. So, so that's how it happened. That's why I got my first girlfriend in my life. <laughs> Not how I got my first girlfriend in my life, but how, you know, I was, first became in a relationship. And, and, and that, honestly, that didn't work out. It was the first love of my life and it didn't work out and it was devastating. It was heartbreaking. Man, suicidal thoughts came to mind and it was really rough experience, man. And, but it was also allowed me the invitation to do, again, to do the work in myself to look at what are the belief systems in play that are contributing to unhealthy relationships, to unhealthy views and perceptions around, around relationships. And also how have my parents influenced those beliefs around what a relationship is? And and it has that experience has gave me the clarity to pursue a partner or be open to to a partner that would contribute to the space that I'm intending so that together we can create the space for the development of a family and that was the true intention like the main intention of of finding someone to, to live with and, and to, and to walk with. And mind you, it took like a few years for like, I wouldn't say a few, probably like eight, nine years for, for that, <laughs> for that clarity to be revealed. You know, cause I was a, I wasn't the healthiest, I wasn't the healthiest man in relationships in, in my whole early twenties, despite, you know, the, the work that I was in, I was going through my, my struggles. I was falling and, uh, and uh struggle with that but i still i think there was devoting myself to the truth and admitting my that uh the times when i was wrong the times when i made mistakes admitting that i need to work on myself i need to do better for myself and i think that as i'm really grateful for all that for all that hard work because now you know i, I have a partner who who we are constantly working towards ba- creating a balance between us and allowing us to create a healthy, uh, space for our, for our daughter. And it's not peaches and cream, you know, we definitely have our, our battles, our arguments. But I think, well, actually it's really, it has really come down to, 
the self responsibility of 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 our of our emotions and not having to project it towards each other and allowing ourselves to have the space to experience and express those emotions with with without judgment and and ultimately practicing uncontrollable love both towards each other and towards our daughter River Jackson mhm You know, as I listen to you, and I think of our first relationship, it's with our mom, when we're inside our mom. Totally keeps us alive, you know, by wanting to live herself, by eating food, because she does everything for us. Mm-hmm. You know, through the umbilical cord, she's feeding us and giving us oxygen, too, because we're in the water world. So totally that relationship with our mom and I listen to you. Mm-hmm. It's such a wonderful feeling to know the relationship you carried on with your mom. You know, like being able to talk to her about falling in love mm-hmm. and uh to get guidance. You know, because um I believe today that many of us Many have um, broken that relationship with their mother, you know, and um, and lose that guidance that, like you're saying, the, the female side of the males and the male side of the female, you know, and um, so that relationship, you know, that first one, and then after that, that's going to guide us because if we break relationship with our mom, the chances of us breaking relationships later. I think increase, mm-hmm. you know, so that um, those traditions that we had before, you know, that would connect a baby to the earth, to the mother, by putting that umbilical cord into the earth again, because the earth is going to keep us alive now, where our mom did before, and our mom still contributes majorly when we're babies, because mm-hmm. they carry us, because we can't walk. They mm-hmm. feed us, protect us from the elements, from danger. Mm-hmm. You know, so that relationship is critical. You know, as well as our dad. You know, um, we can talk to our dad about things. It's great. Yeah. It, it helps us with our future relationships. So what would you, you know, if I ask you, Colby, you have a chance here now to talk to men that come from broken relationships and um, feel beat up, you know, feel bad about life. What would you tell them? That's really, that's an interesting question because um, for me, I I was in a relationship uh, a while back, I don't know, like five years ago. Where I like I was in an abusive relationship and and it was really challenging. I think it was one of the, it was very challenging because I was the one that was getting physically physically beat. I was getting physically abused. I was getting the beat, you know, by by my partner at the time, and and it was it, that was a very challenging. And the one thing that got me out of that abusive cycle. Because I, I, I broke up with the, and I ended that relationship 
about nine months into it, a year or a year or so into it, but I stayed in that relationship for about um, a year and a half after. So just you know, just over two years, I, I stayed in a abusive relationship, and and so when I hear you know people who you know ask why why is this person still in an abusive relationship, and you know I can only speak from my own experience, and 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 that like for me I get it, I understand why why it's difficult to leave to leave that abusive relationship, but the one thing that really allowed me to exit that unhealthy cycle was was prayer and and it came to the moment where um a, a man who you know who's who is like a father to me who was really present to me when i was living in his territory and working in his territory he was him and his you know and his mom actually i mean his partner actually took me as her son so you know he'd basically be my adopted dad as well she was the one that passed away um a few years ago but he was the one who put, took me aside and, and he just prayed with me. Uh, he seen what was going on. He realized what was going on and he pulled me aside and he prayed with me and he just prayed for a window. To give my boy a window, give my son a window. And two weeks later there was a window and, and I, and I took it. And so for me, you know, with, with a lot of people, anyone, you know, who are struggling in abusive relationships, um, if nothing else is working for growth, because usually there's one person in that relationship that's not willing to grow, that's not willing to admit, they're not willing to, to be vulnerable, they're not willing to own responsibility for, for what they need to do to be healthy. And it, it turns abusive, it turns lopsided. And I pray for those in that rut that they have, I pray for a window for them. But I also pray for the courage and the willingness to take the opportunity to go through that window, to to get out of that space, to get out of that that relationship. Because one of the things that I that was programmed in me that allowed me to stay in that relationship was if I wanted to grow, because I'm so committed to growing, I need to be in a relationship and I need to stay in it. Because I seen my parents have this huge struggle in their relationships, in their arguments, in their fights, and they stuck it through. They stuck together till, till death, till death parted them. And to me, that programmed me that I, there's no, no matter what, I can't leave this relationship. And I, and I was, and I put up with a lot of abuse. And, and so I needed to acknowledge that and I needed to reframe that so that I'm not Staying programmed to having to live in an unha- unhealthy um, environment, you know, at a, at a young age, and uh, yeah, and and that's that's how I got out. So if I was to share, you know, anything, it would be for you know to pray for men to pray in your own way, the best way you know how, but also to meet those prayers halfway, so so that. You can do what you need to do, do your part, which includes a lot of the forgiveness work, a lot of the healing work, a lot of the admitting, uh, admitting in, in the willingness to be, to be vulnerable, to admit shame. You know, I, I think one of the things that I wanted to mention that I was thinking about, you know, when we planned this interview 
was how, you know, shame and fear has a huge, has this gripping chokehold power, you know, over, over, you know, people in families, whether it's the, was the father or the mother or, or both. You know, it's this fear and the shame. And, and a lot of us have, well, my partner and I, we, we acknowledge that. And when we first started to prepare Airbnb, because we had the conversation about, my partner and I have had the conversation about the possibility of having a family together. And when that conversation first came up, we made the conscious intention to end any legacy or any trauma that is linked to residential school. And so what we did was we started to prepare ourselves for this possibility of having a family. And that included this emotional detox. And so looking at our, looking within ourselves and looking at our traumas. And when we started doing that, we had to admit the things towards each other that, <laughs> that we wouldn't want anybody to know. We had to admit our shames. And that was very difficult for me because vulnerability as much as I love vulnerability, it was challenging to do with, with my partner. And, but we, we held each other accountable and, and we, we worked through, you know, the, those trials of, of having to work through those traumas. And that also has allowed me to address the, the social conditioning of patriarchy and misogyny that I didn't know I adopted. I wasn't mm-hmm. aware that I adopted it growing up, those beliefs or those perceptions, those views. And my partner was genius in how she put it in my face and saying, and ever so compassionately and kindly and truthfully and laser-like truth, putting it in my face and saying, this, what, and questioning, you know, where is this coming from? Where is this really coming from? And I've had to admit it within myself and having to let go of those beliefs and let go of those views and, and the willingness to take a back seat. Just like, and, and all that came back to those teachings of, you know, the women in my life growing up, my, my cook and my grandmothers and my aunties. And I was like, how is it that I, how is it that the teachings of the, the women in my life became diluted by, by social conditioning? Mm-hmm. And so I had to really look at that and I'm really grateful I did because now I'm, I'm really aware of it and I'm really aware of how, how it happens. And, but now it's like my partner and I, we, we, we have fun and joke around about it because now I call her out mm-hmm. in terms of her maintaining patriarchy or, <laughs> or justifying it, you know, and I'd be like, and then so we end up having some really cool conversations. You know, around the dynamic of how these social conditioning, these social circumstances, you know, influence, you know, our relationship together and, and how we are, um, <laughs> raising our daughter. Mm-hmm. Yes. You know, one of the taglines of my podcast is, um, I say one of my friends, his name is Clueless Deacon. And he says, Jerry, you can't say goodbye to your problems, but you say hello to them. 
<laughs> and that's what you've been just saying here, you know. And uh, you know, uh, Colby, you know, the this is leading up to you know the question I'm going to ask now is a process. I'm really, I'm really glad and proud of your relationship that you have now. It's a, it's a fair relationship. When there's fairness in a relationship, you know, because all conflict. In the world, between nations, between families, between partners, between siblings, is about resources and ideology. People fight about TV, about video games, about the vehicle, about, you know, the kind of food to eat. And then the beliefs, you know, around children. Should we baptize them or should we not? I've heard that conflict, mm-hmm. you know, and, um, and that's about ideology, it's about beliefs. Mm-hmm. So I'd like to hear your beliefs around parenting and how you come to those beliefs. Because we act the way we think. Our thoughts become our actions. Mm-hmm. So I want you to share, if you would like to, about your parenting philosophy and how you come to that. Awesome. Well, as the moment I I, I realized See, when my, my dad passed away two years ago, and a year after, well, not even a year, probably, oh, man, I should ask Andrea, she's inside. Um, probably about, let's see, six months, seven months, about six months after he passed away, um, we found out River Jackson, our daughter, was was on her way. Mm-hmm. And, and it was like that moment, like that close of, Losing, you know, someone so significant in my life and all of a sudden, you know, welcoming new life into our family highlighted how the, I became, I was preparing to become a father unknowingly the first time I seen my dad. The first time I met my dad when I was at Influent was when I was when I was first learning to be a father and that and all that synced in and and happened that realization happened you know when the moment i seen or heard that you know rj was in the water world was in the world of the womb and and, and you know i did mention you know that how andrea and i have been preparing for you know preparing and in, in terms of getting ready if 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 that should happen and and it, and it happened and it was a it was awesome it was it was like the, i think the greatest news in in my life. And, but what that also highlighted was acknowledge, because, you know, in doing the research as well, it highlighted that the issue around parenting that I needed to look at within myself was around the paradigm of, of authoritarianism that, that as a parent, I am superior to children, that my daughter is inferior to me. And, and I, for me, like I've, I've traced that paradigm to, for me personally, to, to residential school mm-hmm. and how, you know, our, when they took the children away, you know, the children in that space, you know, our grandparents, our uncles, our aunties, they they experience themselves as being inferior to the adult presence 
you know, to the priests, to the nuns, is it's almost as if, well, it is basically uh, oppression. So I started to look at, well, how are children being oppressed? What are the subtleties of how children are being oppressed? And how have I oppressed children in my life, in the children that I've worked with, my nieces, the, my nephews? How how have I participated in that? And, you know, and all these realizations came and also resources start to reveal themselves and in, in how, you know, there's, there's individuals in the world, you know, who are doing some amazing work around these, this, this particular paradigm of, of, um, authoritarianism in, in the context of connecting and engaging with, with children. And one of the ones that, uh, that I, that I've looked up to based on how we articulate, articulated it was, uh, Kevin Greary. And he has some, he has some really cool work out there. Uh, he's got a website called revolutionaryparent.com. And he really planted the seed for me. Um, and I, at, you know, in, as a father and getting ready for, for River Jackson in my life. And how I'm going, to, how am I going to prepare myself and allow myself to, to love River Jackson uncontrollably? And one of the things that has, one of the main things that has come up from that is the paradigm around reward and punishment. And an example of that that's out there is, is the question of how, how do you train a dog? Like, mm-hmm. like how, how, how do you train a dog? Well, we have a dog here. Her name's Ember and she's like a show dog. We're like the, we're the third keepers. We're the third guardians of, of Ember. She's like this $2,500 show dog and somehow she came into our life, which is awesome. She's living with us and she has all kinds of tricks. Now, when you train, when you train a dog, you know, to do these tricks, you, it's, it's a paradigm of reward and punishment. If you get them to do what you want, you give them a treat. Mm-hmm. If you, and if they don't do what you want, there's no treat. So reward and, and punishment. And it's interesting because that's the very approach that a lot of people are taking towards raising children. Mm-hmm. They raise and condition children or train children just like how they, they train, they train dogs. And, and that really hit home for me, not only in the context of how I was parented, because my parents did the best they could with the resources, with the resources they had and were aware of. And despite the circumstance that they were in, they didn't, like, I commend them for all that they did. And they've also allowed me the space to evolve my parenting. And now my mom is, like, encouraging and, and uh, accepting and acknowledging, you know, some of the approaches that, that, my, that my partner and I are, are taking in, in raising uh, River Jackson. And one of the things that really pushed people's buttons, that really pushed my button, was children is, is this, uh, it's a theory, but, uh, but uh, for me, I really agree with it from my experience so far, is that children don't need our, our, our praise. What they do need is our attention and our interest. And that really hit home for me because what has revealed, what was revealed to me in, in my life and, and in, you know, committing myself to, you know, work on my, working on myself was that a lot of the decisions that I was making in, in my life was to get approval and to please 
the authoritative figures in my life, which were my parents. And, and that ended up, and that really revealed a lot because then I read the book, The Pedagogy of the Oppressed by Paolo mm-hmm. Fini. I yes. read that, but I read it from the context of, of the parent and the child instead of the oppressor and the oppressed. Mm-hmm. And everything started to click in terms of how my relationship was with, with my parents. And all, and, and again, it, all that stems from, from residential school and how they were parented and what happened to them because of what their parents have gone through and went through. And so when I say like how my partner and I are, are making that conscious intention to end the legacy of, of residential school, it, it's, it has been challenging and it has also been, been painful because we've had to acknowledge the mistakes that our parents have made and also go about forgiving you know what our parents have done but also approaching being present to river jackson knowing that we are going to be part of her issues in life that i can't protect her from not having any issues that i'm probably going to do things i'm probably going to say things that she's not going to like and, and it's not even about being liked by her mm-hmm. it's not about it's not about her having to live to please me or for my approval. It's about me being there to support her life journey because it's her journey. But what's so badass about it is that I get to share that journey with her. And it's like this honor and this privilege that creator brought this being in my life and has trusted me this responsibility to, to facilitate and and lead her from a place of, 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 um, providing the nutrients for who she is. And, it, and so like when you look an example, like the approach would be like a garden, like a flower. You, um, you don't make the flower grow. It just grows on its own. But if you provide the nutrients, then then the flower will bloom. You'll have a lush, lush garden mm-hmm. by providing flourish. the nutrients. Yeah, uh-huh. it'll, it'll flourish. Uh-huh. And and so and so that's the approach that her and I are taking. Because uh-huh. you don't stand over a flower, you don't stand over a garden, you know, and yell at it to grow. You know, you mean you're growing crooked. You're not growing right. You know, it's like it yeah. doesn't that doesn't make sense. Uh-huh. So, so the whole experience has really deepened. My, for me, I can only speak for myself. I'm sure Andrea can speak a lot to it as well. But for me, it's, it's, it's deepened and clarified my relationship to, you know, to life, to life itself uh-huh. and, and, and to the family, to the community and how that's linked to the nation. So that, and it comes down to that question again is how is, how is who I am going to affect you know, the community, the family, the nation, how is who I am going to affect River Jackson? Because she's going to be a, a person amongst the collective mm-hmm. that will likely ask herself the same question. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, Colby, you mentioned Paolo Friere, and he was saying the oppressed become the oppressor. Mm-hmm. You know, and also that when the oppressor heals, you know, it opens all kinds of doors for the oppressed and their healing just takes off if they've been damaged by their oppressor. 
But, uh, you know, when I was listening to you, it reminds me of um, elders that would tell me about parenting. And they wouldn't say, sit down, I'm going to tell you about parenting. Mm-hmm. You know, be ha- I was having breakfast with this grandmother, and she starts telling me a story. Mm-hmm. And she says, you know, I, I have children. I had children when I was young, and I had these nice children, beautiful children. And I was taking mm-hmm. care of them. Mm-hmm. And I would go to a public event, and my grandmother would see me. And she says, oh, there's uh, my monster. And she said she heard that. She sort of laughed and just walked by. I thought her granny was just teasing her. Mm-hmm. And she noticed every time she went out in public, her grandmother saying, oh, there's my monster. And she got fed up with it, and she went up and talked to her mm-hmm. and said, why do you call me a monster? It's the way you raise my grandchildren. And she mm-hmm. left, and she, she said, I raised them well. And she left, and then she comes in public again, and her grandmother says it again. Oh, there's my monster. And she got upset again. She went up and she says, why do you call me a monster? I told you I do everything for my children. I cook, I clean, I wash their clothes. I do everything for them. And the grandmother says, exactly. You might as well cut off their arms and legs. How mm. are my grandchildren going to learn? <laughs> <You know? laughs> and and uh, this old lady looks at me and she said I was a monster. But when my grandmother talked to me and she got a glint in her eye and she says, I stopped being a monster. Nice. And my children have their own home today. They have education. They have a job. You know, so yeah. that is a beautiful story, you know, to talk about teaching responsibility. Nice. And not yeah. this whole, um, it's a really wonderful, you know, about um, reward and punishment story you told and I really appreciate that and um, you know so when we talk about tradition because uh, we come from beautiful people when um, we're here before contact there's nothing going extinct for instance and we're very healthy very sound in mind body and spirit as people as clans or families and we had tradition you know we had the ways that we practiced for thousands of years and um you know so if you could finally um give a message to men to future fathers to fathers to grandfathers uncles cousins brothers friends you know um because the oppressor gave us messages that many internalized they took it in so what would you tell them about tradition and about who they are? That's a that's a good question. Um, can you ask it one more time? Okay. You see, the um, we talked about colonization as being the mm-hmm. let's say the grandfather or the grandparent of a lot of our ills. <laughs> The creation of the broad-based problems we face. And one of them has really critically tarnished the image that people have of their own identity, of being indigenous. Mm. You know, Colby, I'll be honest with you, you know, when I was 13 years old, I was ashamed to be indigenous Mm -hmm. because of what I was watching going on around me. Violence, drunkenness, you know, and... People not taking care of themselves was shameful for me. Mm -hmm. 
and I had to indigenize myself. And there were, there, I heard messages that helped me do that. So what kind of message would you give to indigenize our male, you know, our dads, our grandfathers, uncles and things? Because I think we need to admit that, you know, we're not living an identified way of life. Like this is our way. Mm. You know, so, um, what kind of message would you give to encourage people to, I guess it's about having belief in our ways. Yeah. That's a, that's a, that's a really, really, really cool, cool question. Um, and I, I'm, I'm thinking about it. Thinking about it because because you're highlighting that that question highlights that there are that there is confusion. We're at that place in this in this dynamic of of colonization and the continuation of systems that that are still colonizing. Uh, you're highlighting the, the confusion around it, and 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 I agree with you. There there is still this. This presence of confusion around doubt, around identity, and and that's all that's all part of the process. I find that it's all part of the process, and and there's there's also a lot of a lot of shame in there as well, like that you've highlighted. Now, I can't speak from the experience of being um, ashamed of. Of, of who mm-hmm. I am, mm-hmm. but I can, I can speak from the experience of being, uh, being shamed because of having, having a braid, growing up with braids. Mm-hmm. Because I feel that I was, I feel, honestly, I feel privileged. I feel honored that, that I grew up with, with an uncle and I grew up with an auntie who were the real, backbone of my prayer way of life mm-hmm. and I'm not one to to really be open about our prayer way of life uh-huh. but what I can say is that is that they were they were balanced they were open they are balanced and they are open and where I was raised in in our prayer way of life in our land-based practice, that's, mm-hmm. you know, that's of who I are as indigenous people. I was raised in the presence of, of the pipe. I was way, and uh-huh. I was also raised in the presence of the Bible. And cause my auntie really read the Bible a lot. And whenever I would go visit them in the midst of my struggles, um, because that's how I was raised as well, because they, my, my dad, you know, would, they, my dad and my mom and dad, normally, usually, they weren't the ones that would, that would, you know, discipline me. Uh-huh. It was my auntie and my uncle. Mm-hmm. And they would take me there. And, and so their presence really had a, growing up there really allowed me to have this, this balance. And so, like, I, I know who I am. I've known who I was and I know where, where I come from. And, and that's a, that's an honor for me. And I think it's, it's important for, you know, for our men and for our women and individual, our people out there to, 
to, to pray about it and pray mm-hmm. that it becomes revealed to you that it, that it'll come to you in terms of who who you want who you want to be and and who you are that it's revealed of who you are and one of the things that that was said to us was that our way of life is parallel our prayer way of life is parallel to the other to the other religions out there in the world to the other mm-hmm. spiritual livings out there in the world there's mm-hmm. there's a lot of similarities out there. The values, the principles, and the morals are very similar. Whether mm-hmm. it's the Baha'i faith, whether you know it, it's it's a Catholic, whether it's a Muslim, there there are similarities out there. But mm-hmm. also in our prayer of life as Indigenous peoples, there's a lot of differences in our prayer prayers of life as Indigenous mm-hmm. peoples. Like the Anishinaabeg pray and and live their way of life different than us here. You know, as Nahiel people, as Cree peoples over here, peoples of the prairies. Mm-hmm. So there are differences out there, and but it, but it's also highlighting that the values and the morals and the principles of living in awareness to the land, of living in relation to the land, of loving your family, of taking care of your children, of of having an established relationship to the Creator, all of that is the same. Mm-hmm. All of that is the same across the board. So like when I when I hear like of stories about like in communities where they're banning sweat lodges or in mm-hmm. all of a sudden a sweat lodge, you know, against the church and you know, I don't even get in the, involved in that conversation because mm-hmm. I was I was raised where it's like the values and morales are the same. You know, mm-hmm. we, we like I would invite Jesus to our feast table. Come mm-hmm. eat with us. <laughs> you know? And let's yeah. invite Buddha, like let's invite the Buddha to our feast. Uh-huh. You know, let's 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 invite Allah to our feast. You know, uh-huh. I'll I'll pray with any man. You know, uh-huh. and, and and so there's this unity that that exists there, this harmony that exists there. But it's it's the ego that 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 tends to like overshadow that, that tends to hide that, or ch- tends to get in the way of that. And so I think from from my experience, it really comes down to look at what and be honest with myself and look at what are those things that are blocking me. From just loving. What are the things that are preventing me from loving un- uncontrollably in my, in my life? Mm-hmm. You know, and, and having that prayer relationship to, to the universe, to God, the creator, you know, whatever you, whatever that is for you. And, and, and it, and to be, you know, to be authentic with it, to be authentic mm-hmm. with that. Because mm-hmm. I find that in, in the, like in the work that we're doing, one of the principles that we highlight is that what a person, what I'm most judgmental about in my life is what I'm most insecure about in my life. Mm-hmm. So any, whatever somebody's most judgmental about is what they're most insecure about. And, and so it's like there would be, there would be no need for me to be judgmental of another person's prayer of life if mm-hmm. I was confident and grounded in my own prayer mm-hmm. way of life mm-hmm. and, and I think that's like this I think to me that makes a lot a lot of mm-hmm. sense so for the men out there who are feeling ashamed you know of, of, of or, or having are in that space of confusion you know to, to, to pray about it mm-hmm. you know to really to really pray about it um, what, what, what your question also reminded me you, re- you reminded me of what we did 
for our daughter, River Jackson. Mm-hmm. And we wanted to do this. We wanted to do this um, within a few months of her being born. Um, but circumstances didn't allow us. <coughs> but, but when we were in a hospital, we couldn't leave the hospital unless we filled out Canada's forms. Mm-hmm. Which would, which included her birth certificate and, and for her to be, you know, identified by Canada ultimately. So before, before my daughter can even be welcomed by our nation, by our community, by our families, she was already being identified and being labeled by the colonizer, by this colonial mm-hmm. system. And I didn't like that. And mm-hmm. so I, so my partner and I, we needed to welcome our daughter into our nation. We need, we need to welcome her in, in, in our family. And if, and we did that, we finally did that before she turned one and she just turned one on June, June 28th. But we did that with the intention that of providing her the leverage for in the, in the future, when Canada asks this gen, her generation, Prove that your nations exist. Mm-hmm. Prove that your peoples, you know, have lived here. Prove that your peoples exist. Who are your nations? Where are they? What are they? What defines you as your nation? And, and, you know, and just speaking in the context of the prairies and in the context that in this landscape of the prairies, in terms of treaty one to 11, you know, we made treaty with, with the queen as nations. And then it was that treaty that permitted you know, the Queen's government, the Queen to establish government here. It was a treaty that allowed Canada to even exist here in the first place. Mm-hmm. But now we're, we're, our daughter is, is being born in, into a political circumstance where systems are at play that are trying to get rid of who she is and who she's always been since the beginning of time, mm-hmm. of who we are as Indigenous peoples, of who we have been since the beginning of time. And so we did this formal announcement like we did it you know privately in our own way like we welcomed mm-hmm. her you know in our spiritual way of life but we also did it formally so that we announced it to the world and we, it's actually posted in numerous newspapers and we we're creating this package for her which includes these newspapers clippings it's also including her her whole family tree both on my side and on and uh, andrea's side my partner's side so that she so that when Canada asks a question, okay, prove that your nations exist, then she has this legal leverage, but also this support that, well, they welcomed me. Mm-hmm. This is who was there. These are the people who wrote to me on that day when I was welcomed to my nation. Here's the picture. Here's the newspaper clippings. Here's the archival newspaper clippings. So yeah, my nations exist. And, and that, and that this, and that treaty, you know, our rights as indigenous peoples, that, that they, that they still hear, that they still exist, that they are still as relevant as the day that they were signed. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, we've been providing, approaching it in terms of providing our daughter leverage so that she grows up and, and knowing who she is, knowing where she comes from, so that even, even in terms of visiting, you know, her, Andrea's homelands, in, in Ontario annually as much as we can so that she establishes and, and has a strong, affirms the kinship, you know, mm-hmm. in, in her homeland. 
And I know that can be a struggle for, for a lot of our people, you know, especially, you know, if they were taken into foster care in terms of reconnecting to, to family or reconnecting to homeland. And, and I think one of the most toxic things that are out there in our families and our communities are, are the resentments. Mm-hmm. And, and it's resentment that's really, and there's, there's no one is responsible for this resentment, but, but us. If I have resentment in me, no one's responsible. No one else is responsible for it but me. And and I, and he, I'm the one that needs to to do to work on that because even you know in my family, in terms of my uncles and my aunties, there's a lot of resentment there, and and it's about having the intention of providing this younger generation, even my generation, like my siblings and my cousins out there, like I talk to them from the place of. We, we, we can't hang on to this old stuff like how our parents are. I'm not mm-hmm. going to see you like how my parents expect me to see you. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to see the, the family in my community that my family is battling against or that their family is battling against us. And I'm talking to their, to their kids and saying, you know what? We have to see each other as fresh eyes. Mm-hmm. We can't see ourselves as the labels and judgments that are expected of us from the pain. That mm-hmm. the colonizer, you know, facilitated for our people, mm-hmm. and and I think I really feel that that's also part of of the process. Mm-hmm. All right, Colby, it's been such a wonderful um, gift speaking with you, listening to you. You know, the um, it fills me with hope. You know, I'm an elder now, and I've traveled the country. I've seen the damage. But I've also seen healing. You know, mm-hmm. and, um, my, some of my teachers told me, Jerry, as soon as you start criticizing others, you're feeling superior. <laughs> and uh, my grandmother would say words to me like, ah, don't you dare think you're better than anyone else. Mm-hmm. You know, and uh, so I'm going to tell you, Colby, I'll do a ceremony for your daughter and for you and your partner. Cool. Thank and, you. Uh, and you tell Eric I said hello next I, time I you will. see him. Yes. And I so tell was, him was that, that Eric Eric Tatusis, I, I he trained me in Nietzsche in nineteen seventy six. Was that Eric or was that Edwin? Eric. Eric, okay. okay yeah. Both of them were there. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, it was Eric that was my was mine. Cool. And I got like his braids. I got inspiration yeah. at that in seventy six. I was just coming on the road then. Oh, you know, man. coming back home to the sense of our way and our feelings about our myself. Mm-hmm. And I seen Eric and, um, you know, there was others there, you know, like Terry McHugh and different indigenous people from that worked for Nietzsche. Oh, yeah. And nice. they inspired me and they called me home in a sense. Cool. So they tell, cool. they tell Eric I still think about him. And um, I want to thank you, Colby, for taking the time out today for teachings in the air podcast with jerry old man and i look forward to meeting you at some time or talking to you again ah oh, yes that way thank you for for having me you know it was Colby. A, it's an honor to be part of it Thank you for tuning into the Teachings in the Air podcast. 
We encourage you to share your thoughts with us through Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. We love hearing from our listeners, and so we look forward to hearing from you. We want to know what you think about the show and to hear your thoughts on how to make this program better. And remember to sign up for our newsletter. You can get there by searching tiny.cc forward slash teachings cast. These podcasts are produced with the generous support of the BC Provincial Health Services Authority Indigenous Health and Vancouver Coastal Aboriginal Health. Until next time, this is Jerry Oldman.